We're starting today with a conversation with Rajiv Madhavan, founder and general partner of Clear Ventures. I have known Rajiv for a long time, and uh, we haven't talked in a bit, so there are new developments. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you, Rajiv. Welcome to the show. Happy to be on the show, Srimana. Yes, it's been a long time since we chatted. Yes. So uh, tell us about Clear Ventures. What is the agenda? What, um, you know, tell us about the firm. How big is it? What is the investing focus? What size investments are you making? So Clear Ventures, again, was formed in uh, 2016, July, is when we actually did our second closing. The first closing happened in October. We are a 121 million venture fund, uh, first uh, Clear One, and we focus mostly on B2B investments. Uh, I mean, though there is nothing that prevents us from doing it in any particular area. We are purely opportunistic and we are here to make money. I mean, there is no doubt whatsoever that's our goal uh, and mission. We're not into the belief that you, you go with a particular theme alone in terms of investments, and the reason is very simple. Things come in and out. There's no AI funds that have succeeded or this fund that will succeed because things just keep changing in the valley, and it's, it's that constant change and evolution of the valley that makes this a very great hotbed. We focus on early stage, meaning seed, uh, and typically given my and uh, my co-partners' experiences as, as entrepreneurs before uh, doing a fund, we focus on very, very early stage, uh, traditionally what people would uh, call angel-level uh, seed. Uh, so we like to write one to four million checks, all the way uh, low end could be in the 200K range of things. We can go up to four million in the first round, which we have done. Uh, in programs that require that kind of money. But we obviously, I mean, um, you know, I have gone through different experiences. My second company was more and more of a bootstrap experience than anything else, and some of it forced by the fact that Silicon Valley uh, VCs, 35 of them, turned me down. So I understand how entrepreneurs feel on that. And our goal is to work with, uh, and this much I can tell you, I mean, we, I really love working with entrepreneurs, and our job is to make them successful and help them wherever we can, whether we are in the fund, uh, as, as a fund in, in, the, in the company or not. So let's take a moment to actually highlight um, your entrepreneurial experience just for context for our, uh, for our audience here. Rajiv did one of the... Uh, you know, most successful EDA, electronic design automation companies in uh, in Silicon Valley, Magma Design Automation, and um, and built it to very substantial size from scratch. So, uh, Rajiv, is there uh, are there some highlights that you want to point out there from your uh, journey, um, just to provide some context for this discussion? Yeah. So, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones, I say, because I only worked a year and a half in a big company. The First one and a half years of my life at Bell Northern Research. And after that, I did my first company, Logic Vision. So being in startups where I, I have been the boss of myself in some form or shape. So it makes life um, live in, in a different way. And Logic Vision uh, was my first company. It was a chip design IP company uh, for built-in self-test. Uh, it went public in 2001, was formed in 91. Second company was Ambit Design Systems, which I consider as my toughest uh, company because, you know, pretty much we were going up against uh, Goliath synopsis against what they had. It was David was Goliath extreme. Uh, they, you know, eight guys in a room. 
versus you know 200 uh, people in an IPO company, and and we sold the company for 280 million after the first year of success. So literally, literally three years, um, the company was built into a big success. In the fourth year, we sold, and then I did Magma. Uh, and again, Magma was at the right uh, place at the right time. We led the low-power revolution, as you probably all of you are are now using cell phones. And you know, 80 to 90 percent of cell phones designed up until about five years ago were designed using our chips, and after that, using Synopsys as software, and some now from Cadence software. But we ended up uh, dominating that space of designing low power um, in 98 when we started out. The timing couldn't have been perfect. Uh, we went out right after the economy and, and, and internet had uh, tanked, and we raised, uh, you know, literally a lot of money because it was there wasn't very many avenues. Even though the market was down, to see good companies and, and fund good companies, uh, there weren't a large amount of that. And in 2001, we did our IPO. So literally on the third year of forming the company, we went from zero to 13 million of revenue, 14 million of revenue. So that was a real uh, growth and growing literally at 2x to 3x of the numbers. We had a lot of issues subsequent to the IPO. And, you know, I mean, 11 years of running a public company uh, made me a lot grayer, wiser, older, <laughs> all aspects of things. Uh, and, you know, I mean, uh, there was a year where, in 2005, where our biggest competition used litigation as a tactic to control us, so we went through a massive litigation, um, a, a very terrible experience where we had an employee who did uh, uh, bring things in and so had to fight a good fight, um, which the team did, and so we went, uh, it was a very big roller coaster in the sense that we went up to $125 million in bookings and then tanked down to 70 and then went back up to 200 uh, million in bookings. So it's sort of like a roller coaster, spent two and a half years uh, defending the litigation and winning the litigation, but it was not uh, you know, an easy ride during that two and a half years of, of life. That's when, that's when you realize as a founder, uh, you have to stand up and fight for the rest of the company. And you know, that's a very important portion of what, what uh, I had to do. Uh, even though every morning when you go to work, when you have that many lawyers, you don't enjoy it. Uh, you clearly feel really bad about it. <laughs> An aspect of uh, running a company that's not pleasurable at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, coming back to uh, your Clear Ventures uh, journey, the current um, journey, let's double-click down a little bit on what uh, stage are you looking for? When you say you're willing to put in very early stage, $200,000 um, of investment, what are you looking for in terms of validation? Are you looking for just concept, pre-revenue, little bit of revenue, um, you know, customer validation, but not yet revenue? What is comfortable for you? So, so comfort is, is, I mean, we have done all the way where the concept is not fully, fully baked. We have had people just sit here with us uh, and, uh, you know, having done, being an entrepreneur with a lot of contacts that we bring, we take them to some of the customers and, you know, refine the generic idea into a product. We have done investments at that stage. Uh, there are two companies who sat here uh, in our portfolio and three. In a 2012 one, I was doing my own angel investments, which uh, were at that stage where the concept was not fully clear. We knew there was an opportunity. For example, there was a company called Robin Systems. We knew 
there was an opportunity to do, and it actually took some, you know, um, headwinds and some changes and pivoting to get there. But eventually, we got to the point of understanding that we need a generic uh, infrastructure environment using containers in that particular case for applications. So very deep, highly distributed applications, allowing them to run uh, at scale. That was what Robin Systems was. But the program was ill-defined. You know, I mean, we helped define it and go from there. We have two other companies in our portfolio where it was very early stage. They've not yet announced where it started out uh, from that. To all the way where you know some have uh, the ideas half baked or half coded in, uh, and they can show you some demos. In which case we go and talk to their existing customers. In the earlier concept phase, we can actually help uh, by taking them to customers. I have numerous amount of companies who have pitched to us, even if we have not invested in them. They ra appreciate the fact that we take them to real customers and spend time with them. And I almost act like a VP of sales helping them uh, sell because it's my job uh, if I'm taking them to customers to uh, help them sell, even though we may not have at that stage done, uh, done an investment. But it's trying to get that product definition right at the concept stage. We can start from that very early cradle stages. Okay. Um, there is no need for proof for us. Um, we will try to get that proof by working with you and coming to you with you to customers and helping understand what, uh, how to refine your product idea into something that, that works. Right. And, um, so very, very early stage. Okay. And uh, also double click down for us in terms of sectors. So you said B2B is the primary comfort zone. Within B2B, where are your, you know, primary relationships? You know, obviously you seem to have relationships where you bring people into customers and so forth. Where are those relationships? What are the unfair advantages that you uh, have in the fund? So clearly having run companies where, you know, most of the Fortune 500 have had to buy something or the other, you know, the, the, from one of our portfolio companies or one of the companies we have created, that's really where our customer experiences are. But having said that, being not shy, I don't mind calling 20 people and getting them to, uh, uh, you know, uh, visit and spend some time with with my portfolio or potential portfolio companies. So it's, it's generally that that is our comfort area of B2B, uh, where it could be banks, it could be in the financial sector and the healthcare sector customers. Uh, we can go and get to them or in the retail. I have a company in the retail space called Reflection where, you know, the customers were all sorts of retail uh, players mm -hmm. where we brought in a, a founder, um, uh, Steve Papa, who was the founder of Endeca who knew and had done a company in that space and brought him as a co-investor with us to build that, that uh, relationship, which, we, which I frankly lacked. So having him on board uh, gave me the kind of help to get to those, those uh, customers. So mm -hmm. it's a question of trying to figure out how to get there, and uh, each company uh, is different. What we look for is the entrepreneur's drive, entrepreneur's past experiences, and are they credible in the area in which they are claiming to be able to deliver the technology in? I mean, everything else, happy to work with them. So two derivative questions out of that. Uh, one yeah. is, are you doing cybersecurity? We have done um, some security companies. We have one company in cybersecurity, one company in file-based, uh, you know, protecting your, uh, your files and assets, uh, a company called mm -hmm. Vera Systems. So we have done that, but it's a, 
it's a very tough area because it's gotten very niche uh, area where you know it's almost like plugging the dam, uh, the the dike, and making sure it's it's stable by finding the little holes in there. And uh, we are a little bit concerned about the valuation prospects of some of those very small hole plugging companies. Uh, mm -hmm. So we try to give them the advice, uh, but nonetheless, we do look at those companies uh, from time and to time. What is, what is your perspective on um, mid-market uh, enterprise companies, so B2B companies, not necessarily enterprise companies, because uh, in, in a lot of sectors, the mid-market is underserved, enterprise is overserved, including in cybersecurity, actually. So what, uh, how are you viewing mid-market? So we have done, for example, one of the mid-market companies we uh, selling that space is a company called Reflection. Mostly, most of the retail vendors that they do is mid-market, not the highest okay. end of the, of the customers. They're now scaling to the highest end of the customers, but they started out with mid-market. And the real delta of what I've seen and observed is in the mid-market, the number of players that are there to support your software is almost zero, or the expertise mm -hmm. within those mid-market companies. So you really need to make your software completely, uh, you know, uh, deployable by the least amount of human beings required. It's got to get completely automated. Uh, if you're providing software like the high-end Adobe software, et cetera, you just cannot uh, support and, 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 and defend that kind of customers. You really need to do that with, you know, uh, the least amount of resources. So we have done one or two companies. Obviously, the advice and the amount of work we need to do with the entrepreneurs is to see how quickly is it deployable, how quickly can we actually get the customer up and running. And you almost have to make it idiot-proof in, in a very, you know, automatic and complete self-learned way of deployment. And, and a lot of founders do not think about that because their experience has been on the high end of the enterprise and they think that can scale to the mid-market. Very, very important to make it you know, that easy because you can't afford to build a business where, where a lot of touch points are there. And what about geography? What is your comfort zone? That is very local. Uh, we unfortunately like to be in Silicon Valley. When you're doing at the early stage that I mentioned to you, we need to talk to the founders. We are we will have to go up and down and meet with them quite okay. Uh, 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 you know, often sometimes they sit in our office. We are happy to go and spend time with them. So we are very geographically, you know, Silicon Valley centric. Uh, I mean, obviously they can have R and D facilities, etc. Outside, but when we start, we really want to see companies in Silicon Valley. Okay, and. Um Let's do a few, um, you know, highlights of your portfolio and with, uh, with some context about, you know, when they came to you with what and what was the thought process that you applied to deciding to invest in them? Yeah, so let me start with, uh, you know, I mean, uh, me and my partner, Chris, we were thinking about the need for protecting file security, much like, you know, essentially, let me just give you a history of a company called Vera, which kind of came and presented to us, and we were the first investors in the company. They, uh, before they came to us, thematically, we had concluded that what Snapchat had done, for example, where kids could send pictures and it disappears in five minutes, why isn't there a capability for companies to have rules saying, I'm going to give you access for this document for two days, but I'm going to withdraw the rights, and you really don't get the whole document. It's always encrypted, and the document calls home, much like it does in Snapchat to just go poof. 
but can you actually do it with rules to actually control the our relationship is for two weeks, you can actually read it, so-and-so can read it, but you can't forward it outside your domain or outside within mm -hmm. your local control. So we went out and made uh, phone calls, and one of the entrepreneurs that, that uh, Chris knew, you know, was working on something similar, uh, was in the bowels of a, another, uh, you know, venture fund, sitting there as EIRs and beginning to work on this, and we went and actively campaigned them to get it going and became the first investors, and this is a company called Vera, and they provide that level of document security at scale. Mm -hmm. uh, again, um, essentially think of it as Snapchat, but with rules applied at a document and at any file level, providing the security, whether the document be or the file be in any mm -hmm. uh, asset, be could be on you know, PowerPoint uh, sitting on, on a Google Drive or PowerPoint that you send out an email, the document calls home, sees what your authentication levels and rights are based on that, gives you the ability to open the document, uh, print in certain cases, et cetera. So it is a classic case of the kind of uh, companies we have worked. Uh, we have a company in, uh, in security that we funded again they had the makings of uh, what uh, you know, they wanted to do radio security. I mean, if you look at what is happening, a lot of people are uh, stealing badging information, et cetera, using Bluetooth uh, you know, sensors and scanners. How do you protect things that connect to via Bluetooth to your computer, and then the computer is connected via Wi-Fi into your internal network, so uh, like your LTE phone? How do you not prevent the stealing of data through LTE? So all of that, and again, being able to deploy it in mid-market in that particular case is, is a phenomenal opportunity because uh, really that's where the crux of the problem is going to be. Very large companies are going to put boundaries and perimeters and put all sorts of control uh, mechanisms to try to control this, but this is a much easier way to control it than anybody has deployed. Again, came in with a rough idea. We had them sit in with us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the company, I'm not taking their name because they're going to be launching next month. And, uh, you know, it's a very interesting company that we have done. All the way to there is a consumer app company, which we are in the process of doing where early stage, they have some prototypes. So we can have different uh, differences. Um, it's, we have lots of companies where, you know, it could be at different stages. I have a company called Robin Systems have done a huge contribution in application-defined infrastructure. What we mean by that is in the early days of, uh, you know, the VMware, for example, what they did is they made one computer look like 10 computers and essentially allowed you to run 10, uh, you know, windows uh, on one computer. But today's problem has changed upside down when you take applications which are distributed, anything from Oracle, Hadoop, uh, SAP, HANA, etc. You need to make hundreds of computers look like one cluster. And if you're using, you know, siloed environment where you get one set of infrastructure, someone else gets one uh, set of infrastructure, then you're wasting a lot of compute uh, resources. If you try to use virtualization in that space, your performance goes down. Uh, the amount of SLA you can provide to your customer saying this is the performance you're getting to get. But the problem of addressing making one cluster uh, look like one computer, one, one environment, very quickly out of hundreds of resources, and at the same time have somebody else take the spare resources of it and run it and be able to use thousands of machines at, at the random for hundreds of applications. And we're getting to that point where lots and lots of applications are being written. So how do you provide an infrastructure that gives you that? 
mm-hmm. it's, we think it's a, as big an opportunity as what Nutanix was. We funded the company, uh, helped them bring in a CEO. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, somebody who used to run uh, half of Magma and was one of the main causes of uh, uh, being able to create Magma, runs the company. And the key architect and the CTO came from uh, Veritas. And we were incidental in sort of marrying the two together uh, mm-hmm. and helping them meet and uh, uh, get to form the company. So it was a great story in that we not only helped create the company, but we helped put the two people that were key uh, in subsequent releases to get the product out the door and get the customers now uh, in, 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 in the running. Uh, and they're on the hunt for some very big opportunity in that there's nothing that really addresses the efficiency of applications that run on hundreds of computers, be it on cloud or be it on-prem, and hundreds of applications running at the same time and providing certain levels of you know, SLA, certain level of performance for each of those applications. Excellent. So um, reversing the question now, um, if you look at, let's say, the year 2017, yeah. What have you seen? What trends have you seen in your deal flow? So how many how many companies do you see in a year, for example, and how many do you invest in? And what has been the 2017 deal flows nuggets of uh, trends? So in 2017, my average was I've seen eight companies a week. I'm just going to give you, uh, you know, my stats, Chris, is around the same, but I've, I've seen eight companies a week. Um, that's eight times, uh, f- uh, you know, 52. That's around 400 companies that we have we have seen uh, uh, too. After 400, we we invested in probably six, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, six companies. So that gives you the the velocity. It's almost like you know one in hundred, uh, slightly higher mm-hmm. than that. Uh, but that's the 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 frequency again. One of the things that I believe very much in Sermana is giving them the feedback. Uh, helping them, even if we are not the investor, uh, because I tend to believe that, you know, I mean, that advice and mentorship and having gone through, as I told you, my second company, Ambit, where 35 VCs rejected me. So I have a, uh, I have an empathy and I have really feel that that helping them is, is, is important over and beyond what I do as a venture capitalist. So what are the trends in there? And that's uh, eight hundred companies. Obviously, last year beginning and last year was a year where AI is in everything, whether they have data or not. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a common pitch item, right? Oh, it's, yeah, I do AI. I Lemming's behavior. <laughs> yes, that's the lemon's behavior. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, the question in AI is: first of all, AI as a service is is, a, is never going to work. I mean, it's basically going to be. Uh, because you're going to get Amazon and everything uh, providing AI as a service. It's going to be the applications that AI uses and changes on its head, right? I mean, things that could be done by human beings do building models, human beings looking at data and making the decision, that they can be automated. Now, there are two challenges to it. The challenge number one is, can you get the data and can you own the data? For example, we had companies come to me in semiconductors saying, I can do yield optimization via artificial intelligence. Do you really think that TSMC will give you the data? And some of these entrepreneurs who have never been in the space tell me, yeah, we're going to get it. I've been in that space. You won't get that. So you really need the ability to have the data that you need 
for doing AI. And sometimes that means, you know, striking partnerships, relationship, and then the actual end business application that gives you more value is what is going to give you the benefit of using AI. So we have out of our 13 companies, about uh, nine of them use AI underneath them, but I would call seven of their uh, AI applications as more predictive learning rather than, you know, real deep artificial intelligence. Two of them are real deep AI. So last year was the year of artificial intelligence. There were like 11 chip companies that we saw even. I mean, very surprising to me. Um, and to all the way in different applications making claims that AI is going to be the be-all and end-all uh, solution for all. We did not uh, buy into the, that thesis. We think that AI will play a role in making an application change the way a current application has been written or done, but the end value is going to be in the vertical use of that AI in an application. So, you know, so that's one of the, the one of the theses that we kind of had during the last one year, looked at that. Uh, we saw a number of companies uh, focus with the series A was getting a little tighter, seed was getting a lot easier because I think Silicon Valley has had a lot of success with angels and a lot of funds uh, in the 10, 20 million range, et cetera. So seed was getting very easy, and uh, Series A was getting tougher during the last last uh, year and Series B. So it's almost like there's a middle glut of money, and then at the tail end where, you know, Series D, E, F is lots of money. Lots of money. And seed has lots of money. So it was the way we were observing it. Uh, and and part of part of it is is people's uh, you know desire. Some people's desire. Some of the startups founders had extreme goals in terms of valuation, r- raising the valuation unnecessarily. I mean, it's this whole unicorn impact that that drove them to to think that you got to increase your valuation arbitrarily, right? I mean, at, at the end of it, valuation in the early stage is not going to be the differentiation as much as the, I mean, this is from experience. I mean, it's, it's how you execute and get the amount of customers and win the customers. That will determine your final exit value and your final uh, IPO or whatever valuations you get at the end. And ridiculous valuations are not a favor because eventually to get the success for everybody, if you have investors in a business, you're going to get an ex- you're going to need to get an exit. An exit is not going to be based on your last round valuation. Exit is going to be based on your traction. So you better not let the valuation run ahead of itself. Yeah, I mean it's actually very negative. People don't realize you do that, yeah, it's very and negative. then you're to go for a next round. And if it's going down, it actually is going to hurt you tremendously because there are rights. I mean, even in an IPO, right, there are rights that you've given to the last investors, which is at a higher valuation. You're in a terrible position if you're going with that with that model, right? So you really need to think through that and, uh, you know, not worry, I mean, uh, about early stage valuation. I always tell us you have to, you have to make sure that it's a win-win for you, for all the employees, and for all the investors. And a lot of uh, founders do not realize, I mean, they keep like 70%, 60%, et cetera. That's a, mm-hmm. I mean, it is absolutely the kiss of death because you really want to give your entrepreneurs an opportunity, especially to make their first few, you know, big contribution value. If you do not do that, you're not going to be able to recruit in a Silicon Valley where you have, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world uh, giving up, uh, giving very high salaries. If you want to recruit great talent and you better have, 
talent which is better than you as a founder. That's a given. Right? I think I was the dumbest guy in some sense in the early days of Magma. I had at one period where everybody in the team had a PhD except me. Uh, I mean, and, and I really love the fact that that was the case. And I would love to encourage that, that hire people who are smarter than you. Well, there are different kinds of smarts and, and uh, people who are doing yeah. electronic design automation software, having good, you know, solid electrical engineering credentials is very helpful. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's true in AI, that's true in every one yeah, of the no, areas, I mean, right? Yeah, I, I mean that as a proxy. <laughs> yeah, that is a proxy. So, and the funny thing is, is you know, if you don't give them the right amount of options yeah. uh, and right yeah. amount of, because you can't pay them, overpay them. And there are founders who are coming in uh, thinking that we're going to take a large amount of money and we're going to pay them like we are paying at, uh, we were paying at Google or we were paying at uh, Facebook, et cetera. You need to understand that's not what you got to get a person coming into your company excited about. You got to get them excited about the stock. The moment you've done that, they are bought into the company and everyone works towards the same goal of success of the company and not, you know, just my salary. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the point that you made about seed capital uh, being abundant and seed fundings being abundant and then the Series A gap uh, becoming an issue is, is huge because uh, I think the numbers are like 50,000 to 70,000 or even more seed financing a year. Uh, I don't think we have the 2017 numbers yet, but, uh, but those have been the numbers for the last four, three years, 2013 onwards. And uh, Series A, B, I mean, the venture number is only about 1,200 to 1,500. So, yes, there is a huge drop-off that's happening, um, and, and we don't really have a great answer um, on how to cross that gap, you know, whether it's a quality attraction gap or whatever, but you need to have show certain levels of validation. Because today, the Series A guys are looking for a lot of different metrics and a lot of different uh, Validation metrics, traction metrics, velocity metrics, which uh, are not not necessarily being tackled by the uh, companies who are, who have raised just seed money. So it's 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 been a very tricky environment. And as you point out, there are 500 to 600 uh, micro VCs in the market right now who are uh, funding tons and tons and tons of uh, companies at the seed stage. The game has changed. Seed used to be the harder round to get, and now the game has changed. Seed is is there's a lot of money flushing around in seed. Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, too much money in seed, and uh, uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, think that they can write 50k checks and 500k. One of the things I'm mighty proud, and my partner Chris is mighty proud about, is we have done in our history about 65 to 70 companies. This includes all the angel investments I did uh, since Ambit in '98 uh, on to the investments that Chris had done at USVP and Sequoia. Out of the six seventy companies that close to seventy companies we've done, all of them have gone on to raise Series A and B, and that applies even today. Right. So we we take great pride uh, in picking companies where we think there's a you know very good uh, rate of closing Series A and Series B, and we spend a lot of time with the companies to making sure that those metrics are thought about right from day one. And even if the metrics are not sky high, set your metrics clearly and deliver to those metrics, and that's the, that's the challenge, right? And your valuation may be low if your metrics were only, you know, X, Y, C, but it's better to get that rather than not have any clear, uh, you know, metrics that you want to succeed towards. 
and uh, showing the new investors that, look, this is my goal. I have continuously hit my goals, and I will continuously hit the next milestone goal. Um, yeah. So that, that confidence is what you need to show, and that's, you know, the challenge. A lot of the early stage people do not have uh, not run companies like in a public company where you have to hit the numbers or whatever the metrics are. And nowadays, if you do the seed uh, investments, you need to think about it at that stage. Yeah. So last question, um, what is your TAM preference? And, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from. You know, we are in 2018 January. There is a lot of stuff that has been built already. And, and there aren't, as you said earlier in the context of cybersecurity, there are a lot of niche opportunities, but there aren't as many or as abundant multi-billion dollar opportunities lying around. So I, you know, I talk to a lot of investors and um, including a lot of these micro VCs. Uh, everybody says, or not everybody, but a lot of people say they want to do an unicorn valuation. So that means they want billion dollar market, multi-billion dollar market opportunities and so forth. And I'm um, constantly wondering, it's like, wait a minute, there are 200, 300 million TAM opportunities, in some cases maybe $100 million TAM opportunities, where if you build a robust company with very big market share, you become like the dominant player in a niche that has a smaller TAM, that is also an opportunity for making a lot of money. Are these opportunities that you would consider, or are these not part of your Again, while we may look at some of them on a case-by-case -case basis, the chances are low because I believe that the number one thing that helps a, an entrepreneur is the wind behind them in terms of the size of the market. If the market is big, the, uh, your execution can have one or two hiccups and you will still succeed. If the market is small, the chances of that is very low because you got a one path and you got a one path of execution. So obviously, mm -hmm market is almost as important, if not more important sometimes, than the team. I mean, I have seen I actually agree with that. There's, there's different points of views in Silicon Valley on that topic. I agree with you. I think market is more yeah. important than So to me, number one is market. Number two is, is team. Obviously, both, you know, it's a very tight call between the two very of them. Both of that, them. It's where both of them is important. Everything else is, is sort of immaterial, and that's what we, we, when I told you we take it at very early stage, when we are trying to refine the product development, we are looking at the TAM and we are saying, okay, this portion is better, uh, found, uh, founder XYZ, we, let's go and do that. Your technology is great for that. And it's important to realize that it's, uh, the market makes a lot of difference. And a $100 million market, et cetera, is very, very difficult to build a company on because you make two execution mistakes and you're fried. And what ends up happening is if the technology is not complex, actually, I mean, it has to be complex enough that it's not easy for 10 guys sitting in some other place, not having the expertise in Silicon Valley, but can compete against you right away. Uh, you need to have that one or two years of delta and the gap that you can put. Uh, if you can't, it becomes very, very difficult, especially in enterprise companies. In consumer, obviously, being able to capture eyeballs and capture customers and how fast can you move does make a lot of difference. And sometimes you don't need that, uh, what I just said. But there you need a lot more capital than what people have thought because if you look at all the companies which have built marketplaces, they have had to take a lot of money. 
but even there the metric still requires you to kind of get down to a certain set of number of users and make sure that you're tracking that, right? Uh, so it's very, very important to have market behind us. So in our particular case, we look for the total available market as almost the number one priority. We work with the founders to help you define that, as well as sometimes help you saying, maybe this technology is better used for that. Let's go move to, to doing that mm-hmm. uh, in the very early stage. It's very, very important to me. All right. Well, excellent conversation, Rajiv. I know you have a meeting, and uh, we're going to start the mentoring portion of the program. Thank you for coming, and we'll keep in touch, and I'll send you some things to look at soon. Thank you, Sermon, and thanks very much. Bye. Bye.